Welcome, and thank you for listening to the West Hills Podcast. West Hills Church is a balanced, engaged, authentic, disciple-making church that serves the St. Louis, Missouri area with Sunday services at 9 and 1045 a.m. For more information on our church, go to westhillsstl.org. Now, here's the sermon from Sunday. Last week, we saw Moses on the scene with an incredible encounter with God through the burning bush. That with Moses' encounter with the bush burning and God calling Moses to serve him, that we would suspect that Moses would have complete trust in God. I mean, God spoke directly to Moses through a burning bush, and the bush was not consumed. And God is calling Moses to the specific task of freeing the children of Israel from captivity in Egypt. But Moses, even though he's experienced this remarkable event, has his doubts. And as we work our way through parts of these two chapters, we will see that the greatest Old Testament prophet Moses stood before God and the task ahead of him with uncertainty. And I wonder if you've ever felt like Moses, if you've ever wrestled with the Lord over something you knew he was calling you to do, or if you've ever struggled to believe the promises of God and that they will be fulfilled one day, or if you've ever felt insufficient or inadequate for a task that God has laid on your heart. Well, if that's you, you are not alone in this because this is the state that we find Moses in. And what we see through this text is that it's not really a story about Moses. It's a story about God choosing to work through weak individuals to accomplish his plan. Because what we saw is that God is going to reveal his name to Moses. That Moses is not out in the wilderness looking for God. And yet God is going to commission Moses to speak to Pharaoh to bring the people out of Egypt. Moses isn't sitting around one day with the sheep and says, You know what? I think it's time for the Israelites to come out of Egypt. And he's going to take matters into his own hand. No, Moses is an 80-year-old shepherd who seems content with his life, but God, the main character of the story, comes to Moses, and even though God gives amazing signs, he tells Moses to perform. Moses says, I don't know. But what we see is that through Moses' weakness, God displays his strength and power through this humble servant. That ultimately, this is a story about God working. And Moses is the character who he decides to work through. So with that, I invite you to stand as you are able for the reading of God's word. If you do not have a Bible, we would love to gift one to you. We have extra at the info bar, and that'll be our gift to you. But we will be in Exodus chapter 3. We'll read verse 13 through chapter 4, verse 17. Scriptures say this. Then Moses said to God, If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you. 
And they asked me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? And God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel. I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, say this to the people of Israel. The Lord, the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. Go and gather the elders of Israel together and say to them, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob, has appeared to me, saying, I have observed you and what has been done to you in Egypt. And I promise that I will bring you up out of the affliction of Egypt to the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, the Jebusites, and a land that is flowing with milk and honey. And they will listen to your voice, and you and the elders of Israel shall go to the king of Egypt and say to him, The Lord, the God of the Hebrews, has met with us. And now please let us go a three days journey into the wilderness that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. But I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go unless compelled by a mighty hand. So I will stretch out my hand and strike Egypt with all the wonders that I will do in it. After that, he will let you go. And I will give this people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. And when you go out, you shall not go out empty. But each woman shall ask of her neighbor and any woman who lives in her house for silver and gold jewelry and for clothing, and you shall put them on your sons and on your daughters, so you shall plunder the Egyptians. Then Moses answered, But behold, they will not believe me or listen to my voice, for they will say, The Lord did not appear to you. And the Lord said to him, What is that in your hand? He said, A staff. And he said, throw it on the ground. And so he threw it on the ground, and it became a serpent, and Moses ran from it. But the Lord said to Moses, put your hand out and catch it by the tail. So he put out his hand and caught it, and it became a staff in his hand, that they may believe that the Lord, the God of their fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, has appeared to you. Again, the Lord said to him, put your hand inside your cloak. And he put his hand inside his cloak, and when he took it out, behold, his hand was leprous like snow. Then God said, put your hand back inside your cloak. So he put his hand back inside his cloak, and when he took it out, behold, it was restored like the rest of his flesh. If they will not believe you, God said, or listen to the first sign, they may believe the latter sign. If they will not believe even these two signs or listen to your voice, you shall take some water from the Nile, pour it on dry ground, and the water that you shall take from the Nile will become blood on the dry ground. But Moses said to the Lord, O oh my Lord, I am not eloquent either in the past or since you have spoken to your servant, but I am slow of speech and of tongue. And then the Lord said to him, Who has made man's mouth? Who makes him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Now therefore go, and I will be with you and will, and will be your mouth and teach you what you shall speak. But he said, oh my Lord, please send someone else. 
Then the anger of the Lord was kindled against Moses. And he said, Is there not Aaron, your brother, the Levite? I know that he can speak well. Behold, he is coming out to meet you. And when he sees you, he will be glad in heart. You shall speak to him and put, your, put the words in his mouth. And I will be with your mouth and with his mouth and will teach you both what to do. He shall speak for you to be the people. And he shall be your mouth, and you shall be as God to him. And take in your hand the staff with which you shall do these signs. This is the word of the Lord. Let us ask the Lord for help this morning. Our Father, we come to you again, and we do ask for your help to look at your word, to see the truths in it, to apply it to our lives. We ask that you would remove any distractions that might be on our mind, the difficulties of this past week, hardships and relationships, that we might be able to focus on you and who you are and what you want to teach us this morning through your word. We ask that you would help us all to change, to be faithful followers of you as a result of our time this morning. We pray that these would be your words and not mine. Amen. You may be seated. Last week when Moses has this encounter with God, he starts with saying, who am I to do this great task that you have called me to? And this week we see Moses coming up with another question of saying, well, we talked about who I am, but who are you? And this passage fleshes out who is God. And we see first that he is the God of promises. That the reason Moses asks for a name is because names carry very significant meanings in the Old Testament. Just like when Jacob was given the new name Israel. In God's response to Moses when he asked, well, who are you? God doesn't answer his question at first. Instead, God starts by describing himself in terms that supersede all notions of deity that Moses might be familiar with. In verse 14, God says, I am who I am. And this is not a name, it's a statement of God's being. That the Hebrew word here means to be. So the first thing God does here is to give Moses a verb and not a noun. And God does this to set himself apart from all the other so-called gods that Moses would be familiar with in Egypt. And so he's emphasizing that, hey, you know these 500 plus gods in Egypt God's saying, I am matchless, that they do not compare to me at all. And before God gives Moses his name, God defines his essence, or he's defining his character for Moses. That God is saying that he is the creator, that he is the sustainer of all that exists that from him flows everything that is or will be, that God is who he is, 
in that he is everything. So he's painting this picture for Moses to say, I am greater, bigger, stronger, more uh, deity than you can even imagine. And then God comes back in the latter parts of verse 14 and restates this idea and he says, I am. And this means that God is unchanging and he is eternal. It means that he is the one who always is, that he is the same yesterday, today, from tomorrow. It means that he is self-existent, that he causes everything to be, and he never wasn't. That God doesn't owe his being or essence to anyone else. That God is who he is all by himself. That he isn't dependent on anyone else. That he is eternally self-sufficient. And then God moves in verse 15 to give us the name that we will see used throughout the majority of the Old Testament when referring to God. It says this in verse 15. God also said to Moses, say this to the people of Israel. The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. And God is using the third-person form of his essence to create and share his name that you might see written in your Bible with all capital letters, L-O-R-D. Or if it was Hebrew, it would read all capital letters, Y-H-W-H, or as we say today, Yahweh. That this is the sacred name of God that is rooted in his very character, in his very essence. And that it means that he is above and beyond everything in this life. That God simply and eternally is. And that God desires a relationship with his people. That's why he gives them this name to say, I want relationship with you, so I will share this name with you. David Murray, commenting on this passage, puts it this way. He says that God reaches into the dark attics of their minds, so when Moses is communicating this to the rest of the Israelites, and helps them find the dusty recollection from their dim and distant past. Because there's been this 400 years of slavery. And as he wipes the dust off his name, he's essentially saying, you have forgotten my name, so let me help you remember it. It is, I am who I am. Who I was to your fathers, I will be to you. Who I was, who I was. I am who I was, I was who I am, I am who I am, and I am who I will be. Essentially, he's saying every promise made and every promise is kept because of who I am. So all those promises made to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob, I will make sure they come true because it's in my very character to make sure that they happen. And the rest of the book of Exodus is the story of God living up to that name that he gives Moses. 
If you're familiar with the Bible, you might say, I know that I am from somewhere else in the scriptures. And it appears in the Gospel of John where Jesus gives it in response to the Pharisees asking him questions saying, who do you think you are? And Jesus said, your father Abraham rejoiced at the thought of seeing my day. He saw it and was glad. The Pharisees responded, you are not yet 50 years old. You have not seen Abraham I tell you the truth, Jesus answered, before Abraham was born, I am. And it's at this point where they pick up stones to stone Jesus because they recognize that that I am statement Jesus is using is directly connected to this passage in Exodus chapter 3, 14, where Jesus is saying, I am that same God. That before Abraham existed, I was there. Or perhaps you're familiar with the other I am statements Jesus makes where he says, I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the door of the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the way, the truth, the life. I am the true vine. What Jesus is showing us in comparison to Exodus chapter 3 and 4 is that he has fulfilled that promise even more, that he has come to offer us something more, that he's come to offer eternal life to all of those who believe, that he has come to be our good shepherd, that he's come to be our guide, to care for us, to lead us through the way to eternal life, that it's through Jesus we have connection to God. Just as God is coming to Moses and saying, I want relationship with you, Jesus came to earth to say the same thing, that I desire relationship with you. But God doesn't just stop there. We also see when we ask the question of who is God, that he is the God of provision. So after God describes his character and essence and gives Moses this name, He moves on to verse 16 through 22, which a good way to think about it is like a table of contents. That if you get a book and you open it up and it tells you exactly where the author is going to go in their thoughts or what the themes of the chapter is, that he's forecasting or giving a map. He's saying, here's the plan, Moses. Here's what I want you to do. He says, Moses, I want you to go to the elders. I want you to tell them about our conversation. I want you to say to them that I had an interaction with the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. And he has said he is going to make good on his promises. That God has seen our affliction, that he has observed it, and he's going to do something about it now. That after he tells the elders, the leaders, that they're to go to the people, and after they tell the people that here is the plan, God is going to free us from Egypt, he then says, and then I want you to go to Pharaoh, which is where Moses probably says, this plan doesn't seem too good after all. Because as God wants him to go to Pharaoh, he's going to tell him, hey, by the way, when you talk to Pharaoh, there's going to be oppositions, there's going to be problems, there's going to be difficulties. And as Moses is told to go to Pharaoh, 
he's told to say very specific things. God wants Pharaoh to hear his name, Yahweh, used. That he wants Moses to come and say, we want to worship our God. Which is indicating that that is what God desires all along in this passage. For his people to worship him freely. And he wants Pharaoh to hear this. And as he continues telling Moses through the table of contents of here's the map, here's what you're going to do, here's the plan to follow, he says, oh, and by the way, Pharaoh's not going to be convinced at all. That in fact, he's not going to be convinced until I work mighty wonders through my hands. And he says, but it's all a part of the plan. There's no need to worry. I'm telling you what you're going to experience, but it's okay because I have a plan. And because of who I am, I am stronger than Pharaoh and you can trust in me. And then we get to verse 21. After God says, hey, and they will let you go. He says, I will give this people, the Israelites, favor in the sight of the Egyptians. And when you go, you shall not go empty. But each woman shall ask her neighbor and any woman who lives in her house for silver and gold jewelry and for clothing, and you shall put them on your sons and your daughters, so you shall plunder the Egyptians. Remember, the Israelites are slaves in Egypt, and God says, hey, by the way, you are going to plunder the Egyptians. That this prediction that the Israelites would leave Egypt with riches that are freely given to them It's also a fulfillment of a promise that God made to Abraham in Genesis 15 when he said, your descendants will come out with a great possession. That after centuries of slavery, the compensating gifts the Israelites at their departure will show God's sovereignty and care for his children. That God is telling Moses, hey, on your way out, like he's telling you in the plan, on your way out, tell the women to go on a shopping spree. To just ask people for their things. I like that dress. I like that necklace. I like that ring. And they will give it to you freely. And then he says, you know what? Tell the children, pick up something nice while you're at it. And I think the inclusion of the children is a reminder to tell future generations of the overwhelming kindness and riches that Yahweh had provided them. And in fact, these same gold and silver jewelries will be used as an act of worship when constructing the tabernacle to worship this Yahweh who freed them from slavery. And the same is true for us today if we are followers of Jesus, that we also know the riches of Christ. Ephesians chapter 3, verse 7 and 8 says this, Of this gospel, this is the Apostle Paul writing, of this gospel I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given to me by the working of his power. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. That Paul is saying, for those of you who are followers of Jesus, you have the unsearchable riches of Christ given access to you. That God is going to richly bless you by allowing you to have relationship with him. 
that you'll spend eternity with him, that you will worship him, that the riches are unsearchable, they're unnumerable, that we can't even fathom all of the riches that Christ will give us as a relationship with him. It's just a foreshadowing here in Exodus of what we receive in Christ. And after God gives Moses this whole plan, he says, I'm going to give you all these things. Yes, there's going to be hardships, but I'm going to work through it. You're going to plunder the Egyptians. You're going to leave so wealthy you can't even think about it. Moses says, what if they don't listen to me? Which is a fair question if you think about the life of Moses to this point, that he is an Israelite turned rejected, that he's put into the water so he can be preserved, Israelite turned prince, turned murderer, turned fugitive, turned vagabond, turned shepherd, now turned savior. He is the most unlikely of characters that the Israelites are going to follow after. So he says, what if they won't listen to me? Like, this is a great plan, but it only works if they hear me, listen to me, and follow after me. And God, in his kindness, shows that he is the God of wonders. And God gives Moses these three signs. And these Three signs are signs that point beyond just themselves. And so it starts with God asking Moses, Moses, what is that in your hand? When God asks a question, it's not because he needs to know the answer or doesn't know the answer. It's because he's using it to teach. So Moses says, this is my staff. This is my tool. This is what I use to care for the sheep. And so God says, okay, I want you to cast it down. And it turns into a snake. And he runs away. How many of you are afraid of snakes? Raise your hand. You would run away too if a stick turned into a snake. And God calls him back. He says, Moses, come back. And I want you to pick up the snake by its tail. We laugh like I you must go to snake handling school that you know you don't pick up a snake by its tail because it could turn and bite you. And yet God says, Moses, pick it up by its tail. And as he does, it turns back into the stick. God is showing his power on display, saying, you don't need to be afraid of the snake because I am more powerful than the snake. God is showing Moses in the sign. He says in verse 5, I'm doing this for you so that they may believe that the Lord, the God of their fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has appeared to you. He says, I'm giving you this sign so that they will believe you. That the sign of the serpent, like I mentioned, has a, a more important meaning That this is the first time we've seen a snake play an important role in Scripture. That the serpent that slithered into the garden of God in Genesis chapter 2 and deceived Adam and Eve. That in Genesis chapter 3, God promised that one day the seed of the woman would crush the head of the seed of the serpent. That this sign here is a reminder that God keeps his word 
And soon Moses, who is the seed of the woman, will deliver his people out from the seed of the serpent. That this is a sign that Yahweh is greater than the most powerful nation at the time. The Egyptians were known for their worshiping of the snake that they considered Pharaoh to be the son of God and on his crown was a cobra ready to strike, that they worshiped the serpent as a sign of wisdom and healing in their lives. And God is showing Moses, because Moses knows all this, remember he's a prince in Egypt, he's very familiar with how important the serpent is. God is showing his power over Egypt, over their king, and also over Satan himself. That God is making his power known to Moses by taking control of this serpent. And then if that's not enough, God says to Moses, hey, put your hand in your jacket and pull it out. And it comes out and it's leprous, it's white, it's flaky, it's gross, and Moses would be able to identify his hand as a death sentence, that there's no cure for leprosy, that he might as well go wander into the wilderness and die. And yet God says, hey, put your hand back in your coat and pull it out, and it's miraculously returned back to normal. That this isn't something wrong with Moses' eyes. His hand was leprous, and God is showing that he has power over human health that he can bring dead things back to life because his hand was as good as dead. He probably would have cut it off if God did not heal it. That God is even more powerful than death or in human sickness. And God says, if they don't listen to the first sign or the latter sign, I will give you a third sign, a third wonder. That this last sign, if you're familiar with the story of Exodus, becomes the sign of what we know as the first of the ten plagues. Now, the Nile River for the Egyptians was a god to them, that they worshipped it, that it was a source of life, that God would judge their source of life by turning it into blood, that it's a warning to Israel that God would judge those who are not his people, that God is showing that the Nile River in comparison to God is nothing but a trickling stream. And as much as the Nile River sustained life for them in Egypt, God is showing that he is the ultimate sustainer of life, saying, you don't need the Nile River, I will take care of you. I think each of these signs is not just for Moses to convince the people of Israel, because God says that they're going to hear you, they're going to know your words are true, but I think these are also signs to teach Moses, but also signs to teach us about the power of God. And for us today, we have different signs that we can look to, that we can look in the Bible and see another story of an ordinary piece of wood, one in which Jesus was willing to sacrifice his life on and be nailed to on our behalf to die in our place for our sins on the cross. That God used another ordinary piece of wood to bring about salvation for us. 
But a second sign is the sign of the empty tomb where Jesus was placed and then rose again, showing his power over death, over sin, and over the great serpent Satan. Saying, I am more powerful than all these things, showing that he can bring about salvation for us. That these signs of Moses are just a foreshadowing of greater things God is going to do in the future. They are things to meant to draw us to awe and wonder about who God is and how he works and cause us to cling to him and his power. And yet even though God does all of these wonderful signs for Moses and he's told him exactly what to expect and that he's going to work and he's promised that the children of Israel will come worship me on this mountain, we see Moses has yet again another excuse. And he says in verse 10, Oh my Lord, I am not eloquent either in past or since you have spoken to your servant, but I am slow of speech and of tongue. Moses is saying, why would you choose to use me? I have all of these weaknesses. And we see, lastly, that God is over weaknesses. We have no reason to doubt that Moses had some sort of speech impediment or slurred speech, or he just talked really slow. Similarly, how we do not know what the Apostle Paul's thorn in the flesh is, we have no reason to think Moses would try to make up just one more excuse here by saying, like, I'm not the greatest speaker. Why are you choosing to use me? And God follows up his, yet again, objection to why he shouldn't be the one God uses. In verse 11, then the Lord said to him, who has made man's mouth? Who makes him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord, where he's yet again using Lord, like creator of all things? Now go, and I will be your mouth and teach you what you shall speak. That God is not oblivious to Moses' shortcomings, to his speech impediments, to what he sees as a weakness, that perhaps he's insecure about this. God says, Who, who's made man's mouth? And what we see here is that God makes no mistakes, even in the physical disabilities of his people. That there's no disability that has missed his eye. That in love, God has made everything for his glory according to his plan. And God comforts Moses and says, even if you have this weakness, even if you have this disability, the greater truth you should lean on is that I will be with you. And then God one-ups him and he says, you're worried about your mouth? God says, hey, what about those who are deaf or those who are mute? And for good measure, what about those who can't see? Do you not think that I can work through those people as well? That this is a picture of those who lack insight into the identity and purpose of God. That he's addressing all of Moses' fears and concerns. Moses says, what if the people won't listen? God says, well, I give them ears to hear. 
What if they don't believe the signs? Well, I'm going to give them eyes so that they can see. What I want you to do is not worry about your shortcomings and weaknesses. I want you to speak what I have told you to do. God's response to Moses is, listen, I'm the one who gives words. I'm the one who gives hearing. I'm the one who gives insight. God is saying that I speak through powerless servants. That I am the one who does the work. Moses, I am calling you to just be faithful and do what I have told you to do. What we see is that God was never concerned about Moses' speech problem. He's well aware. Before Moses was born, God knew he would have whatever weakness this is. He's concerned with Moses' heart problem. That ultimately, if you know the story of Exodus, God will go on to do many great and wonderful things through this truly reluctant servant. Moses, exhausted of coming up with excuse after excuse after excuse, lets his heart be known to God as he raises his final concern. Then God's met it. He says, you know what, God? I just don't want to go. Is there not anyone else you can use? It shows Moses' apathy, his insecurity, his desire to flee God's call on his life. Remember, this is occurring with God in the burning bush, that he is speaking with this Yahweh and doing these things, and he's like, it's not enough. And in that moment, God doesn't move on or abandon Moses and say, you know what, fine, just go away. God doesn't send a fireball out of the burning bush to destroy Moses. Instead, he says, what about Aaron? What if I send a helper alongside of you? What if I bring someone who will help you and you will still convey my message to God's people and I will bring Aaron to help you? Similarly to us today, perhaps you find yourself feeling just like Moses. That you think of all your insecurities, your doubts about faith, how you're not equipped enough to share the gospel. And yet, just as God sent Aaron along to help Moses, God sends to those who are his children the Holy Spirit to be a help to us today, to guide us, to comfort us, to point us to the truths of God's scripture, to reveal sin in our lives, that God doesn't move away from us in our weakness and in our brokenness. Instead, he sends help to us. He says, okay, Moses, pick up your staff. Moses seems to doubt God and his sufficiency throughout this whole entire scene. That these wonderful signs that God provides Moses are meant to bolster up his faith and confidence. And it is simply just not enough for Moses. Because he looks at his own wisdom, his own strength, and his own position as a murderer 
traitor, wanderer, shepherd, and says, I can't do this. I'm not a leader. And he's right. And the passage highlights this for us that he can't do these things, but God can. That God can overcome all of these weaknesses, all of these obstacles. And he says, I'm going to do this for you. And the same is true for us. If you've had this experience with God that you recognize that you cannot save yourselves because you are sinful and that you need someone else on your behalf to come and do the work to bring you into relationship with God. That just as Moses was looking for someone who was sufficient enough for him, we are called to look to Christ to be our sign of sufficiency. That we look back to that common piece of wood that held Christ as he sacrificed himself for us because we could not save ourselves. Just as Moses couldn't free Israel by himself, we cannot free ourselves from sin. That we needed Jesus to die on the cross for our place and the Spirit to do a work in our hearts so that we can believe the gospel. That Jesus provided salvation for us who were unable to save ourselves. Francis Schaeffer in a famous sermon series called No Little People, he puts it this way. He says, Consider the mighty ways in which God used a dead stick of wood. God so used a stick of wood can be a banner cry for each of us. Though we are limited and weak in talent, physical energy, psychological strength, we are not less than a stick of wood. But as the rod of Moses had to become the rod of God, so that which is me must become the me of God. Then I can become useful in God's hands. The scripture emphasizes that much can come from little if the little is truly consecrated to God. There are no little people and no big people in the true spiritual sense, but only consecrated and unconsecrated people. The problem for each of us is applying this truth to ourselves. That just as God would use this dead stick of wood to do many miracles, God desires to use us to fulfill his plan. That God is all powerful and he can take anything and in his hands, he can use it to accomplish his purposes and his will and his plan. The Apostle Paul says in 2 Corinthians 12, 9, but he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may rest on me. 
That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong. The Apostle Paul is saying it's not about how much strength you can muster up. It's about how strong and powerful your God is and that he can work through all of your weaknesses to accomplish his will. And he says, God's grace is sufficient for you. That he can work regardless of whatever excuses you can muster up before God about why you don't want to follow his will or plan for your life. And we're left with Moses at the end in verse 17. And God says, and take in your hand the staff. Let it be a reminder to you with which you shall do these signs. And the very next verse that we'll get to next week says, and Moses went back. That we see him pick up his stick and follow after God in obedience. That we are left with the same option today. To consider how God could use your life and mine if we consecrated our lives to him if we fully trusted in his fathomless power, his sovereign plan, his amazing will for our lives, if we trust in him, what it is that he will choose to do through us. And his call to all of us is to believe. If we are followers of Jesus, to believe in God's plan for our lives. If we are wrestling with our faith or what we believe, he's saying, believe in me and I will be sufficient for you. That just as God was concerned about Moses' heart, he's concerned about our hearts today. Are our hearts consecrated to God? Are we willing to father him even though we have insecurities and doubts and struggles and hardships? Do we really believe that God is powerful enough to still work through us. I think Exodus points us to, yes, he can, and he is, and he will, and he'll continue to do it until his plan is complete. And the call for all of us today is to trust and believe.